This is Radioactive, an environmental and social justice news journal for November 14, 2019. This is Meredith DiFrancesco. Today we speak with senior investigative reporter for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch on the over 900 recently released emails to Breitbart News from the now senior policy advisor to President Trump, Stephen Miller, prior to the 2016 elections. The majority of the emails focus on ideology around race and immigration. We also speak with an organizer with the North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance on the impacts the Central Maine Power Energy Transmission Corridor would have on First Nation communities within Canada. A delegation will come to Maine later this month. Today we're speaking with Michael Edison Hayden, a senior investigative reporter for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch. They just published the first of a series of reports on the more than 900 emails written by now senior policy advisor to President Trump, Stephen Miller, to Breitbart News in a time span before the elections when he was communications director for then-Senator Jeff Sessions. These emails reveal his affinity and perpetuation of white supremacist ideology and writings and active efforts to infuse Breitbart readers with his anti-immigrant fear-mongering. So welcome to the program again, Michael Edison Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for taking the time. We know you're quite busy. So we know Stephen Miller has uh, an incredible impact on President Trump's policies and positions, particularly concerning immigration and immigration from non-white countries. He has been instrumental, if not the architect, of the administration's family separation policy, designed explicitly as a cruel deterrent, banning of immigration from five majority Muslim countries, and the erasure of TPS, the Temporary Protected Status for immigrants from a number of non-white countries. And we can connect that a little bit later with hurricane relocation. So Miller's ideology has been starkly apparent. But now we have these 900 emails shared by a former Breitbart News writer and editor from between 2015 and 2016, before the elections, when again, he worked for Senator, then Senator Jeff Sessions. And you, re- you report that more than 80% of the emails relate to subjects of race and immigration, including white nationalist sources and themes. So before we get into more of the, the details of your research and looking over these emails, talk about what they reveal about Miller's campaign to influence public discourse and now public policy. Sure. Well, I think the first thing um, your listeners need to understand is that when Miller sent the emails that we obtained, he was talking to a person who he considered to be a fellow traveler in the anti-immigration movement. Mm-hmm. And that was Katie McHugh. She was, um, you know, an editor for Breitbart News at that time. Uh, she was connected to white nationalist figures at that time. She has since renounced it totally. And because of, because of that connection, you can see Miller, um, you know, sort of dropping his, dropping uh, politeness, dropping the kind of you know, front he might put in front of a, um, you know, a centrist or even center-right journalist, and you can see him digging in on immigrants in a way that if somebody, you know, if, if two people were were fans of the same sports team, right, they might talk in the same sort of way. So he was part of the anti-immigration movement, and she was part of the anti-immigration movement at that time, and that's why the emails have uh, so much revealing information. We see that he um, recommended that Breitbart aggregate from BDARE from American Renaissance, these are these are explicitly white nationalist websites. 
Um, we see that he recommended that Breitbart write about uh, Camp of the Saints, which is a novel that is really popular with white nationalists and neo-Nazis. Um, those examples alone show that Miller's reading material, I think, is, um, is steeped in this stuff. There is just absolutely no way that you would have Camp of the Saints on your bookshelf unless you studied extremism like, like I do, or you were part of the extremist movement. For an example, this is one example. I mean, there's just ton, there, there are tons of other things and many more emails. Let's get into those emails a little bit more, and then we can pull back for the broader picture in a minute. Sure. Dig down into, and then I know that you're still going through emails and there'll be more reports, but what the ideology is in some of these um, white supremacist, new, quote-unquote, news sources and and literature, what what they yeah. actually purport and what how he was suggesting to Breitbart editors and writers they might incorporate that in, that into their um, their perspectives that they were putting forth. Sure, there's one very um, cut and dry example that I can give you, um, which is Bidair, the white nationalist, white genocide themed website that um, that you know a, a lot of people are talking about on social media right now in relation to Miller. Um, he shared a VDR article about temporary protective status for refugees. Now, why does that matter? Because under the Trump administration, we have seen them pulling away temporary protective status for refugees, um, which is uh, temporary protective status was, was created not by President Obama. It was created by George H.W. Bush. It was created by a Republican administration, and they are removing it from, you know, for countries where um, your residents are majority non-white. And we have to ask ourselves, if he is reading VDARE and enacting policies based on what he's reading on VDARE, you know, to what degree are white nationals actually dictating policies about refugees? I'll give you a, another example as well, which is he talks, you know, in, in the book Camp of the Saints, which has an extremely hysterical, uh, dystopian view of refugees, where it's just like the idea that Refugees or can do nothing but destroy uh, whites and and you know just et cetera just rape and whatever else and the way they're depicted in this book which is grotesque um, I recommend people take a look at it if you want an idea of what he what he reads mm-hmm. um, you know we have reduced the number of refugees that are allowed into this country um, you know year by year since the Trump administration started and I think we have a record low of like eighteen thousand or something like that going into this fiscal year I mean that. If that is coming from this guy being immersed in white nationalist uh, reading material, then we have a serious, serious problem right now. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think there's any way to overstate it. And you saw in these emails, and we'll, we'll refer to the site so people can read the breakdown because we can't touch, obviously, upon it all now. But in these conversations, uh, particularly with the, that one um, editor and writer, McHugh, um, where he presents these different articles and um, positions and suggests that Breitbart amplify these messages through their writing and, their, and therefore their readership. Yeah, that's right. Um, he was responsible, and I think you're going to see even more of that in the third story. The second story came out today. Oh, okay, great. Um, and it deals with Center for Immigration Studies, which is a, a, a think tank that has repeatedly promoted white nationalists and promotes uh, writers who, who deal in debunked race science, i.e. Hispanic people have a lower IQ. Um, now, you got to ask yourself, is that something that we want to have coming out of we want to be writing policy around in 2019. Um, but I think you're going to find also in that fir- in the first story and also in the third story, which is going to be coming out at the beginning of next week, I think, that 
Miller had a hand in so many of the articles that you would see in Breitbart that you might say, wow, this is a really racist thing. I can't believe it's being shared so much. It's quite shocking. Well, Miller was really pushing content in Breitbart in such an aggressive manner that uh, that he must have landed um, dozens and dozens of articles. Uh, one article that we you know you, will come out later, for instance, is like a surge in birth in the United States of people named Muhammad. You might say, okay, so what? <laughs> you know, but he pushed that into a, a, as a Breitbart story that a, where on the surface people being named Muhammad would be bad. You know what I mean? That it might indicate something more nefarious than just people people with that name in the United States. I mean, absolutely um, unbelievable uh, when you think about where we were uh, as a country before this and, and, and to see where we are now. And the encouragement of highlighting crimes committed by non-white populations versus white populations. Yeah, I mean, he is aggressively highlighting any crimes where somebody where has a Latin last name or an Arab last name, and he is just trying to make a huge deal in whatever way he can about these obscure crimes, crimes committed by people and you know that, that are only picked up by local news source. You know, just as a point of comparison, if you look at like uh, you know so-called progressive press or whatever, if you look at you know whatever, try to imagine people doing that with with white people. It would be a, an absurd idea you know people base their things based on ideology but in his case he is focused on the race of shooters and things like that because he sees non-whites as being um any infractions created by non-whites as being part of an agenda that he needs to push you know and then you can just see that throughout the emails all 900 we are speaking with michael edison hayden with the southern poverty law center's hate watch division and to get back to the TPS for a moment, we see in the emails um, discussion around, again, this is the temporary protected status for people from other countries flee- right. fleeing different hardships, including um, there was discussion at that point in 2015 about whether there would be more of an influx of Mexican refugees escaping Hurricane Patricia. And then we fast forward, as you pointed out in your report, to current day and what um, Trump had to say about people from the Bahamas who might be trying to uh, seek temporary protected status because of the devastation there. Yeah. Sure, and the, the Bahamas is ninety percent is ninety percent black. And I Trump, mean, Trump's quote read, again, his quote saying, "I don't want to allow people that weren't supposed to be in the Bahamas to come to the United States." Again, I guess that would be uh, indicating that there were somehow other people than people from the Bahamas there, but yeah, I mean, in, it's including a, it's, very it, it, bad people and some very bad gang members and some very very bad drug dealers. End quote. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a, it, 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 it's it's. Uh... Unbelievable, actually, when you really think about it. Um, you know, it, 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 it's something that, you know, as an American, you hear something like that and you just feel shame. You know, I mean, there's a level of shame. I mean, we're talking about providing people shelter from a storm. I mean, this is, this is absurd, you know. Uh, the, the, the idea that you can't provide that to someone because of the color of their skin, you know, which is, which is, which is what white nationalists believe. Which is, it's just a disgrace. I mean, any all Americans, regardless of race, um, you know, in my opinion, should be pretty, feel pretty embarrassed about that. Quite frankly, on that that particular example, we're talking about people who lost their homes. You know, and the way the way that the administration is treating them is is 
you know, this person is only trying to get into the United States <clears throat> so they can get away with, um, you know, exploiting, you know, our, our generosity and, and try to do harm to us or something like that. I mean, that's the way white nationalists would portray it. In my opinion, let white nationalists say that. That's what they do. That's what they say about almost everything. That's the way they're going to, that's the way they're going to operate. But if it's coming out of the White House, I'm sorry, but that is extraordinarily, I mean, if, if that's what they're, what they're reading, then in an action policy, that is, an, you know, an extreme failure of our culture. You know, it's really letting down people of color and it's running down all Americans. And comment on the fact that Stephen Miller is one of the continuing members of President Trump's team. He's been there since the beginning and is one of the people, by all reports, that has had significant impact on shaping policy there. Yeah. Um, well, we know that, you know, we only know what other people report, right? So Southern Poverty Law Center doesn't have the level of access that you know, mainstream publications might have, right? Sure. Um, we're a civil rights organization. So there are people who, have, and, and, and we rely on, on their reporting to find out. And, and, and what we've seen from reporting in the Washington Post and the New York Times is that Stephen Miller is very heavily involved in writing Trump's, in writing speeches for Trump and his rhetoric, but also designing his policies. He is very involved. I can see in the email... The type of worker he is, uh, he, he's, he's, he's up at all hours, you know, and he's focused on the same subjects, race and immigration, the whole time. So you can imagine what somebody like that, um, you know, dictating stuff in the White House, what he might be doing. Um, and, you know, now we have a better idea of the way he thinks. We just have a couple minutes left, so I want to um, make sure that we hit upon any other points that you might want to talk about, Michael Edison Hayden. Um, yeah, I, you know, we, we published another story today. Um, and it deals with Center for Immigration Studies, which is a nice-sounding name for a think tank that um, has pushed white nationalists through their, you know, has pushed white nationalist writers and pushed researchers who, you know, traffic in discredited race science. And what we see Miller doing is he shares the he shares a cell phone number of one of the members of, you know, one of one of the employees of Center for Immigration Studies. You know, in addition to that. Uh, Miller also sends embargoed material like a press person might. Um, and that shows you the level of, in, of connection he might have to a group like Center for Immigration Studies, which Southern Poverty Law Center lists on a tape map. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, if, he, if Center for Immigration Studies is writing our immigration policies, um, you know, people who do have that access, reporters who do have that access, have some serious questions to ask. Uh, because these are not people; uh, these are not people who were welcomed in previous administrations for obvious reasons. This is this is really serious stuff. These are people, you know, they, they employ people who have written papers um, implying that Latin people have lower IQs than whites. I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, this is just, uh, you know, I think it's one of those situations where you have to stop and and you know stop everything for a moment. And look at where we are and just say, well, you know, is this something that we're going to tolerate? Um, so I'd urge everyone to read that story and to read uh, the forthcoming reporting that we have, uh, which will, I think, reveal just how involved Miller was in, in, in shaping Breitbart's coverage, particularly during the 2016 election. Well, Michael Edison Hayden, thanks for joining us today from the Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch. And we'll link to those reports on our website as well. It was nice talking to you. Thank you. 
Again, that was Michael Edison Hayden at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Hate Watch. To view the reports on the Stephen Miller Breitbart emails, you can go to their website, splcenter.org. We now turn to an organizer with the North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance on the impacts the Central Maine Power Energy Transmission Corridor would have on First Nation communities within Canada. A delegation will visit Maine later this month. My name is Meg Sheehan. I'm an attorney and I am the coordinator for the North American Mega Dams Resistance Alliance. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you. So this month, a delegation organized by the North American Megadam Resistance Alliance will tour a number of Northeast states, including Maine, underscoring the links between communities resisting energy transmission corridors like Central Maine Power's so-called New England Clean Energy Connect and Indigenous communities within Canada who bear the devastating impacts of mega hydro projects. On November 25th, members of some of the Indigenous communities will hold events in Maine. Today we speak with one of the organizers with North American Megadam Resistance Alliance, Meg Sheehan. She joins us by phone from Massachusetts, is that right, Meg? New Hampshire. New Hampshire, great. Well, um, welcome to the program again, and we will be covering the events uh, when you are in Maine, but we thank you for joining us earlier on the program so people can know about the delegation prior. Um, first, talk about the origins and goals of the North American Mega Dam Resistance Alliance. Well, I'll start with our goal, and that is to raise awareness that Megadam hydropower, especially here in the northeast U.S., where it's coming from Canada, is not clean, not green, and not renewable. Um, it is actually dirty energy, and according to the International Rivers Organization, it should be treated like fossil fuels. And I won't go into all of the reasons why that is true, but there's plenty of research online that one could access. How this tour came about is in 2016, Massachusetts signed the Energy Diversity Act seeking to obtain 1,200 megawatts of hydropower in order to satisfy its clean energy plan and to make the state look green. Governor Baker wanted to push more green energy and more green jobs. And there were several proposals submitted to the state, and one of them was, that was chosen was to bring hydropower from the Churchill River in Labrador, from the Muskrat Falls Dam that was mm -hmm. then under construction, a very, very large mega dam, 824 megawatts of power, and bring that via the Maritimes in Canada underneath the Gulf of Maine via a subsea cable to my hometown of Plymouth, Mass. And at the time, I was working on raising awareness and trying to shut down the Plymouth nuclear power plant, which, along with a very wide network of activists, we managed to do. And the suggestion was that we bring in this mega dam hydropower because it was clean and green. I have been a river advocate my whole life and knew about the activism back in the 1990s with um, the Cree Indigenous people 
working very hard to try to stop the James Bay Project Mm -hmm. and the Great Whale Project, which would bring hydropower from that region over a 1,000 miles to New York City. Some of those dams were stopped, but not all of them, and it's been at great cost to the Cree and the indigenous communities there. So I began to work on raising awareness and um, in Plymouth, we have the National Day of Mourning, which is hosted by the United American Indians of New England. And that was our first Day of Mourning speaker tour. And Amy Norman, an Inuit woman from the Muskrat Falls Resistance in Labrador, came to Plymouth and spoke very powerfully about the Labrador land protectors and their effort to protect their indigenous lands and waters from extreme energy extraction in the form of diverting and damming these rivers and selling it the hydropower for private profit. Last year we did a similar tour, and this year we have connected with a much wider um, network of indigenous and frontline land and water protectors in Canada. We have been connected through the Waniskatan Alliance of Hydro-Impacted Communities in Canada, and two of our, four of our speakers actually this year will be coming from Manitoba, from the Pemakikamak Cree Nation, which is um, very severely impacted by Manitoba Hydro's dam construction and operation that has been going on for almost 40 years. And that river is also called the Churchill River, and the extreme destruction there um, resulted in reversing the flow of one of Canada's largest rivers and so that it no longer flows into Hudson Bay but down south to supply cities in the U.S. So talk with us a, a little bit more. You're, you're making connections with a number of these proposed transmission lines or current transmission, energy transmission lines. And one of them, again, as we said, is Central Maine Power's so-called New England Clean Energy Connect, which, um, as you know, will be, if built, would bring energy from Canada through Maine to Massachusetts. Can you talk about um, what you know of the direct connection of that transmission line to Indigenous communities and the impacts there with the hydropower that would be coming through that line? Sure. Um, That power is coming from Hydro-Quebec, which gets most of its hydropower from the province of Quebec, but it also gets hydropower, 5,000 megawatts, from the Churchill River that is located in Labrador. So when I spoke earlier about the Labrador land protectors and the resistance against muskrat balls, that is resistance based on trying to prevent further hydropower impacts to the Churchill River. And so Hydro-Quebec is currently selling power from Labrador and Quebec provinces um, into the U.S., and that will be transmitted over the CMP, and people might be aware that there was a similar proposal to bring Canadian hydropower into the U.S. to Boston and to Boston via the Northern Pass. While that campaign was going on to stop that transmission corridor, several members of the Cree Pesmet Nation 
visited the U.S. and Chief Renee Simone called that hydropower cultural genocide due to the impacts that it has and continues to have on indigenous ways of life and cultures in Canada. So it is all connected, and to the extent that consumers of the hydropower that is transmitted over these transmission corridors, CMP, Northern Pass, there is one in New York, the Champlain-Hudson Power Express, the Vermont Clean Energy Link is proposed and permitted. Those are what our Indigenous community members refer to as blood megawatts. The extraction of this water and the diversion and destruction of the rivers prevents them from practicing their cultural and traditional ways of life, which include obtaining wild food from the rivers and from the lands that are flooded. Part of the impacts of of these dams is to cause methylmercury poisoning Mm -hmm. of wild foods. And in 2016, Harvard University did a study uh, in Labrador and in Quebec province about Hydro-Quebec and Nalcor Energy's uh, proposed dams, finding that these dams would expose most Indigenous people there to unacceptable levels of methylmercury poisoning. And how this happens is that there is naturally occurring mercury in the peatlands and the wetlands and the trees that are Um, On the land, when that is flooded, the mercury is released into the water column, converts into methylmercury, and enters the food chain. And methylmercury is a lethal neurotoxin. The indigenous communities are very, very remote, and they rely on their wild foods, fish, ducks, seals, etc., in order to survive. And they are faced with the choice of eating contaminated food, or going hungry. And that is what our Indigenous speakers will talk about, methylmercury poisoning. And so to the extent that we are consuming this power on our end, we are perpetuating that cultural genocide as well as the destruction of the rivers. And some uh, proponents of this green power will say that the dams are already built, the damage is already done, and therefore we in the U.S. are not responsible for the externalities such as methylmercury poisoning. That is not true because new dams are being built. The Muskrat Falls Dam was just completed this summer and is intended for export to the U.S. And the ongoing operations of these dams, some of which were first built in the 1950s, continue to cause methylmercury poisoning because of the way the dams are operated. They raise and lower the water levels um, in response to demand, and there's constantly an alteration of the streams and the river flow that causes erosion and further destruction of the rivers. So we just have about a minute left in today's segment, and as we said, we will be covering um, your visit to Maine with the delegation. Can we tell people where in Maine you will be? Again, this is November 25th, which is Monday. 
1 p.m. press conference in Augusta and a 6 o'clock event in Farmington, which is uh, closer to the impacted areas of the central proposed central Maine transmission corridor where there's been a lot of resistance from people within Maine. Yes, we will be at Preble Hall at the University of Maine in Farmington at 6 p.m. We'll be at the State House at 1 p.m. for a conference, press conference on Monday. And we'll also be walking over to the site of the Edwards Dam that was removed by uh, Maine with great fanfare in the 1990s to point out the um, irony of supporting green hydropower, so-called, while removing dams in Maine. And we really look forward to speaking with everyone and sharing the stories of the frontline communities. And where can people go for more information, Meg Sheehan? Northeast. Megadansresistancealliance.org. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking some time with us today, and we'll be following up. Thank you very much, Marilyn. And you've been listening to Radioactive on WERU Community Radio.